Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The race is on, but only under safety car conditions and two and a quarter hours late with the Belgian Grand Prix reduced to three laps under the safety car and Max Verstappen taking the easiest victory of his career. I'm Ed Straw and joining me to discuss how it all played out and how the Spa weekend still produced some winners and losers are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, this is one you've been at base for. Did you know something about the weather forecast before you let me and Scott come out? Absolutely, yeah. I could see which way this was going. It was obvious. Um, it was obvious this was going to be the first time in F1 history that the, um, the there weren't any racing laps at all. It was just so obvious. And, uh, yeah, that's why I sat it out. <laughs> well, it's been quite good being here. It's certainly been an interesting experience. And, actually, Scott, you were enjoying the intrigue and the interest, weren't you? Except when you suddenly lost motivation at one point. Yeah, I did have a, uh, I did have sort of like a mid excitement dip. Um, I should point out, uh, at no point was I obviously like reveling in the terrible situation that other people found themselves in, especially the fans that, that were that were trackside. I did. Um, I know it sounds disingenuous, especially when drivers always say just like, oh, you know, the the fans this, the fans that. But I just think like every single person that was sat in the media centre basically at some point had just like this enormous pang of sympathy because you just see these people, like these truly hardy souls <laughs> that are out there. Uh, you know, bad enough, the ones that I could see across from the um, the, the, the pit lane building uh, sitting in the grandstand, but the people that we could see TV pictures of standing around the place and just getting soaking wet and or sitting in there sort of like uh, whatever they've got like pulled over them to try and stay dry. I, I did feel just enormous sympathy for them and they're the real losers out of... Uh, what happened here but just in terms of being here for a unique experience being here for something that was unprecedented something that is almost certainly never going to happen again in Grand Prix history to actually be here for it to see it unfold to try and work out what was going on and the different sort of regulatory implications of things how things were going to be worked out not really knowing what was going to happen next there, there was absolutely an element of fascination about it that I did enjoy yeah I have to say I've I've said for uh, many years that one day this was going to happen, but even when it did finally happen, I couldn't quite believe it. But I have to say, if there's any of you listening to this who are in the crowd, I salute you. You are hardy souls, and and I hope you got uh, you got dry and warm later on. There was tremendous determination from those watching, and uh, I can only apologise on behalf of F1 for the fact there wasn't a, a serious race, but there was plenty to talk about. So hopefully, we're going to be able to pick through some of the intrigue. So let's get into it. Well, Mark, we did have a race. The result was declared after one lap, officially. Uh, even by your 
Even your capacity for drawing out fascinating unseen details will have given you nothing to work with on this one. So I'll just quickly remind everyone of the results. Max Verstappen first, George Russell second, and Lewis Hamilton third. But the key question is, should this really be considered a race and points or rather half points awarded? No, of course not. Um, it, it, there's a certain regulatory framework that um, the, the the commercial terms are paid out on and which defines what a race is, and fine, you can tick those boxes. But as to whether it's it, it's just a complete joke to consider it was a race, it was, you know, some laps behind a safety car, that's all that happened. It doesn't really need spelling out. Um, and I think the, uh, the, the implications of it are um, being very eloquently pointed out by Lewis Hamilton, um, as ever, you know, the the most articulate for any injustices. But as he points out, yeah, yeah, it's obvious we, we couldn't race. It was just way too dangerous for that track and, and those conditions. Um, but the fact that we did those laps under the safety car to satisfy the commercial terms to make sure that F1 got paid, um, that's contractually, you know, okay is one thing. But morally, what about the poor fans that have paid money to be there and stood in the rain and supported F1 uh, while it didn't do anything? It didn't give them a race. Um, shouldn't they be um, compensated? Shouldn't they have be have, have their, their, their money paid back, essentially? And I think that's a very difficult point to argue against from a commercial viewpoint, um, from a, a moral viewpoint rather than a commercial one. But Scott, from what you heard from some of the key players, commercial concerns were nothing to do with it, were they? Yeah, apparently it's um, it's just a massive coincidence and convenience that we've we we got enough safety car running to just tip over the three laps completed by the race leader to be able to award half points and get a race result log. Which how fortunate, considering they weren't aiming for it to get that you know the the, the commercial stuff to make sure that everything every box was ticked in that regard. It, that's that's. It's just worked out very conveniently for Formula One, hasn't it? Yeah, that's what I didn't like. It was a it was a box ticking exercise. It wasn't a, a Grand Prix, and I'd have much rather it was abandoned without it being a race at all. And obviously, I'd rather there was a race, but what we had was not a race. And, and other sports, this I've been to cricket matches that have been rained off entirely, and you get your refund, or if there's only a certain number of overs play, you get a partial refund. And certainly, we didn't get many overs in this Grand Prix, so at the very least, a partial refund. But I, I agree with Lewis Hamilton. Uh, if there'd been overs in this Grand Prix, I'd have understood it uh, less than I normally do because obviously my cricket knowledge, as you often mock me for, is, is at a bare minimum. But I think my issue with sort of how it's been handled from this insistence that there wasn't a commercial element to it is that it, it does just it, it constantly just comes across as disingenuous and borderline patronising because to just say. I, I do understand the point that this is the sort of thing that can happen. If you buy a ticket to a sporting event, there, there are sometimes conditions, circumstances that mean you don't see what you, you're paying to see. But to then come out and just say, like, like so for example, Stefano Domenicali said, first of all, we put the the emphasis on the promoter, said, you know, it's not F1 that handles the ticket. So basically saying, you guys make the first move. And then sort of describing it as, oh, we could... Uh, you know, we should give the the fans the attention they deserve. It's kind of like, well, that's just words <laughs> and they don't really mean anything. Um, are you going to give these people a refund or not? I mean, they've sat through a, they've sat through a wet F3 race 
a Porsche Super Cup race, which I know like that's what everyone here came for. The, the Grand Prix is just a sideshow to the Porsche Super Cup. But you have they, they have just sat through that, which they've sat through hell for that. And there has to... I feel like if you're going to do something like this, and you're going to do something so obviously for you to get your own money to tick your boxes you have to offer something back to the fans i'm not saying that's necessarily a full refund but there's got to be something they can do is it and some kind of gesture of, of good work goodwill would would make an awful lot of sense and be the only and just simply be the right thing to do it's not even about posturing it's the right thing to do yeah i'd agree with that completely i mean some will have bought tickets for the whole weekend and they've had their friday and saturday so you can legitimately say they've had some of their value but it's just about building loyal customers as it were if you want to talk in the commercial terms these are your customers you need to look after them they show devotion to you so uh, look after them we have to see how it all plays out though but yeah for me from a purely racing perspective it'll go down the record books as a grand prix win drivers will have scored points and got results but it's not really a, a, a grand prix by any means many drivers said that they felt they shouldn't have been points awarded sebastian vettel was critical uh, Pierre Gasly said he didn't like it so there were plenty of drivers who uh, who agree with that but we should say Mark Max Verstappen did turn in a, a really excellent pole lap to, to win this we'll get on to the other standout performer later but it's not Max Verstappen's fault that the race circumstances were this way he was the one who got pole position he nailed it on Saturday so he earned the right to be in the position to benefit from the weird situation and who knows he'd probably taken off in the wet race and won anyway. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's no one's fault. It's just the situation it found itself in. It's just a question of what you do once you found yourself in that situation. And, and no, Max um, Max did the job in qualifying. And I, I suspect that had the race gone ahead, um, in, in well, had had there been a wet race, not, not we, we couldn't have raced like that. There would have, it would have been carnage. Somebody would have got hurt or worse. Um, but had there been a wet race, I suspect he, he would have dominated it. They, 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 they were going backwards and forwards with um, wing levels on the Red Bull throughout the weekend, and they trimmed it right out in um, practice three, but then it stuck the um, wing back on in um, uh, for qualifying. So they, they had a lot of downforce on the car. Um, Mercedes were running a, um, a, a low a low downforce setup, Um George Russell's Williams was somewhere in between. And I suspect that um, in a wet race, Max would have just disappeared. Nobody would have seen which way he'd gone. So, yeah, I, I don't think um, that, that, that there was any particular uh, look ab- about Max getting maximum points. He, he, he was the, the, quickest, the, the quickest guy out there this weekend. And I imagine Max Verstappen would have loved to race. In fact, he was saying he wanted to race, of course, with the advantage of the visibility privilege of the leader. So slightly difficult uh, for everyone else behind him. But he'd have loved to, to have won it the right way, just as every driver w- would have would have done. But he gained that position uh, on merit. I think we also have to stress just how difficult those conditions were. I say difficult. It's not even difficult. Daniel Ricciardo was talking about this after the race very eloquently, as he as he usually does, and just and just hitting the point. In that he says there's a point where the rain level gets up to a point where it's not about skill. It's just about pure luck, and just the car just can't handle it. So it's very easy to say, oh well, in the old days they dealt with it. But realistically, you can see why they were being extremely cautious, particularly at this this sort of circuit, because what where's, where's the skill in if you literally cannot drive the car, if you cannot see 
we've seen some terrible accidents at uh, at Spa over the over the past few years. So we we just don't want that uh, that situation. So is, is anybody? joining the, the queue to condemn the drivers for being cowards or some of the more larry uh, social media complaints no no i, I and i also uh, i also think that the visibility point is is super important as well you could see it when when they're behind the safety car how much spray is is getting kicked up and more than once max verstappen ended up quite close to the to the safety car just because obviously when you're trying it's it's hard enough behind the safety car obviously just making sure you do your uh, keeping your brakes and tyres in, in some kind of temperature window and then obviously accelerating, braking, the safety car is only running at a certain speed. Trying to do all that when conditions are difficult, when, you know, the the, the safety car is, um, should we say, moving around a little bit <laughs> in its own right, you know, keeping that thing on track and trying to go at a sensible enough speed is is, is, is very, very difficult. Um, but then obviously the drivers, Max Verstappen as, as the leader of the pack is then obviously trying to do his own thing behind that while also trying to see where he's going. And then everyone behind him is just in this massive wall of spray and you just can't see anything. You, you, you would see like television pictures where out of some corners, you can't see the car behind because of the spray. What do you think that, you know, what do you think the view is like when you're actually in the cockpit itself? So uh, it was just it was just a race that was just at no point looked like it was going to happen for, for for safety reasons because ultimately it's easy to say that in the past races would have been held in these conditions or worse conditions but the fact is now we're, we in reality we I think we do have slightly odd uh, I think we do have slightly odd wet wet tires I think they only work in a very narrow range aquaplaning is super easy these cars are <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to just describe them as just weird racing cars as well they don't react like just sort of conventional racers even conventional single seaters or conventional formula one cars or what the idea of a conventional formula one car is because it just becomes so so trick um and then if you put into all that that none of the drivers can see anything it's a recipe for disaster especially at a track like this where you don't even need conditions like this to have massive massive accidents and people piling into one another so that's why i think it was actually handled very clumsily at times but the broader overall position of we never went racing was it was the sad outcome, but it was the right outcome. Let's get into that in a little bit more detail, Scott. F1 race director Michael Mazzi was in the unenviable position of being in charge of it all. Do you think he got those key decisions right in terms of the initial delay with those formation laps and then the brief spell under the safety car later on to tick off those necessary laps? Uh, well... I don't think there's a clear-cut answer just because I think certain parts of it were handled correctly. I don't think the overall process was handled as well as it could have been. Um, and there were some parts that were just handled badly. It exposed a lot of shortcomings with the F1 FIA regulations and it also exposed the mastery that the FIA has on those regulations. You know, We, we, we heard, for example, Red Bull having to contest the FIA and Michael Massey's interpretation that Sergio Perez wouldn't be allowed to take the restart um, if if Rebel could get his car repaired on time, because he'd had outside assistance getting back to the to the garage after the his reconnaissance lap shunt, but Rebel pointed out, well, there's nothing in the rules that say you can't do that. You can't get the outside assistance during the Grand Prix, but th- th- there's nothing before then. And then Massey basically said, oh, uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll check that and get back to you. And then actually, it turned out Perez could take the restart had the car been fixed in time, and obviously we went racing properly. Um, so that's kind of. I, <laughs> I, I accept that the regulations don't explicitly state anything there, but they don't state it either way. And yet Massey came back with a very 
definitive answer when he was first asked about it and said, no, he can't take the start. And then realized he was wrong and, and corrected. That's the race director not being in total command of, of that situation, which is, which again, as I say, shows a, a shortcoming and then just procedural stuff like this, um, this run of delays, for example. And then you get into this murky situation we had during the lengthy red flag period where people are questioning how many laps have been officially completed because people are, uh, the, the, the suggestion being that no laps have completed, but actually officially every time you had an official race delay start, that takes one lap off the total, which makes in, in, in practical terms is, is just, I understand it from a time point of view. I guess you sort of say, okay, five minutes is roughly worth one lap. So we'll take that away. But that just seems such an arbitrary way of doing it. So it's just, just really kind of messy from start to finish and then at the end they say it was a legitimate attempt to go racing the FAA and even the teams apparently saw a gap in the radar that said on the weather radar that said actually there was a little window coming which is that's when they made the decision to go for it but then in the time it took to actually get things going again because it's a 10 minute warning by the time they then went out on track the rain was falling harder than it was when they made that decision and it got worse again I want to believe that there was a genuine attempt to get the racing going. And I do think they did everything within the the various powers that the FAA stewards have and that the race director has to try and manage this as well as possible. It was a very difficult one to manage. There was some stuff they did well, but I can't help but shake the feeling that this, ultimately it was all about a box ticking exercise, as you put it. And then that, so that ultimately kind of makes the way they handled it at the end disappointing. It's impossible to prove whether they did genuinely do it with the intent of going racing again but i think that's part of the whole problem isn't it it's not massively transparent the whole thing was a bit murky at the at best it was messily handled at worst it was actually handled quite cynically so it obviously depends on what side of the the divide you sit but mark do you think there was ever any point where it was possible to to get a race off the drivers said the best of the conditions were on the reconnaissance laps Obviously, when they did run under the safety car, it, it, it was even worse than it had been earlier when they did those early formation laps. But was there any window they, they could have hit? No, not from what I could see, um, just from on screen. Um, but I, I think maybe if we'd, um, you know, we, we, we've got we got the weather forecast, maybe if we'd restructured the whole weekend and, and got the race underway early in the morning, maybe. I don't know. Um, it's a bit like uh, Suzuka 2014 when we knew the the bad weather was coming and there was um, thought given to starting the race a couple of hours early, um, but it, it was deemed to be uh, too too difficult because you couldn't tell the people that had bought the tickets in time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't know. I mean, you you were there on the ground and I wasn't, so. I, I I don't know whether there is anything there earlier, but certainly from what I saw from that time at 3 p.m. right the way through to when it was declared several hours later, no, it didn't look like that was a feasible at any point. Did that look like a feasible racetrack? The the only opportunity they'd have had to, to have done it would have been to do what sort of Mark was outlining there's precedent for and shift the whole thing forward. But Stefano Domenicali says that that was never considered an, op- an option because when everybody was looking at the weather forecast for today, it looked like, in to quote Domenicali, normal rain. So man- manageable weather. And you kind of, and I guess their position was that you can't change an entire schedule 
uh, on the basis of there will be a bit of rain at, at some point. I'm, I'm obviously, it's obviously, that's a slightly flippant way of viewing it because it's been raining extremely heavily at times all weekend. It's been a nightmare. And every time you go outside, there's, it's like the weather turns every two or three minutes. Um, the phrase fickle are weather has never been more true than of, of whenever someone's tried to dash into the paddock. Um, so maybe they should have, uh, maybe they, they could or should have um, looked at that and said, actually, do you know what? There, we need to give ourselves the biggest window possible. So we are rescheduling it, and the race is going to have a scheduled start time now of midday or, or something. But obviously, that has further knock-on implications for the F3 and Super Cup support races. The promoter has to notify ticket holders. People have to get in. There was already some traffic chaos this morning because a bunch of the car parks that are based on fields and and, and on mud basically uh, had flooded because of there's so much rain. So there was already difficulties. It, <laughs> I think it was just a very, very unfortunate set of circumstances. Yeah, well, Formula One doesn't control the weather. That is absolutely uh, true. And it's just yeah, one of those things that the weather was <laughs> was very, very bad throughout today. It brightened up a little bit kind of around midday and then it got back into just being wall-to-wall grey and, and rain. So, yeah, just uh, just one of those things in that regard. Well, Mark, inevitably, F1 doesn't want this to happen again. As always, we have questions from our The Race Members Club members. So Oscar asks, what should be done in situations like the one encountered today? What does F1 need to do to be able to race successfully in the wet, given that climate change may well lead to more wet races? Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, you know, we the the, the weather that they, we've seen at Spa this weekend is actually a whole lot less extreme than it um they, they they saw there a few months ago when it was um mudslides and it was causing damage to buildings and you know lots of people lost their homes and, and their lives so yeah this is um this is not just a localized problem this is a this is a trend and yeah in terms of it's very it's very difficult to say. Um, well, we reschedule Spa for a, a say a friendlier time in the in the year. It's it's like a, a little mini climate. It, it it's it's always um, liable to to have every heavy rainfall. Um, so yeah, we we I think you you'd have to look at making um, the cars more raceable in in extreme weather so that would uh, imply uh, higher ride heights um it did occur to me that the 2022 generation of cars would be interesting to see how a 2022 generation of car would have handled this because the whole idea of those cars behind the whole concept is to make the aerodynamic wake less disruptive and it's doing that by throwing up the air much higher over the car behind and I wonder if that would have made visibility better, uh, because of the, obviously it's the the, the water has gone the same way as the air. So that it, it, we might find that the twenty twenty two generation of car um, isn't isn't as um, uh, does, doesn't create such awful visibility as as these ones. And and that was the main problem. It wasn't so much standing water. The, most of the drivers were saying actually the the surface was okay. You could, the, the surface was perfectly raceable. It was just the visibility. And you know George is saying well above two hundred kilometers per hour, about one hundred twenty five miles an hour, you literally might as well just closed your eyes. You might as well just driven up the straight with your eyes closed. So the the that that's just not a 
really a, a, a very flexible racing car in, in terms of uh, road racing and in terms of encompassing all the, all the different weather conditions we might meet. So, yeah, I think um, it, certainly it, it, it should be factored in to the to the, um, the, the the future specifications of the cars um, but let's see where the where we are as a starting point with the 22 cars because I suspect they might already be significantly better in that respect yeah we can hope on that one I think in terms of what we're preventing the the areas where they can clearly improve are the things that don't allow the race to happen but improving the communication of what's going on it wasn't great to the TV audience was it in terms of exactly what the delays were and and the decisions that were being made. I don't know what it was like for those watching trackside, if anyone was. Uh, find me a tweet on Edge Draw F1 at, uh, at, at Twitter to let me know if actually you were getting decent announcements and updates on the on the situation. That would be interesting to know. But there's, there's little things there that can be that can be done. But, yeah, fundamentally it's about what the cars are, are like in those in those conditions. But they, they can certainly take a little bit of a, a look at the rules and uh, and make an improvement. We've also got a fun question from Paul Semnocker, who asks, seeing the treacherous conditions, has there ever been a situation where the safety car has gone off track? It's a slightly left-field question, but but we have... We have occasionally seen ones, haven't we, Mark? Interlagos 2002, Heidfeld hit the medical car door, didn't he? Not quite uh, mm-hmm. safety car crashing, but Sid, Sid Watkins opened yeah. the door, Heidfeld yeah. and the Sauber ticket <laughs> off. That, that was one that springs to mind. Yeah, and there was the, you know how the medical cars and the safety cars do the reconnaissance laps earlier in the weekend. Um, there was, I think it was 2000, Alex Ribeiro um, crashed the medical car very heavily at Monaco, Just just went, just went off at tobacco, I think it was, and uh, crunched the front against the wall. But um, actually, the, the safety car losing control whilst leading the pack, no, I've, I don't think that's ever happened. Yeah, yeah, pretty unlike. There was the Inui incident at Monaco in 95, wasn't there, where Philip Bogalski in a course car hit his arrows while it was being recovered, and because of the way it was being towed and the impact, it ended up flipping. Thankfully, Inui was wearing his, his helmet. So we, we've got a few safety-slash-course-slash-medical-car mishaps there, but not not quite a full-on situation where they've uh, they've gone off chat. They do, of course, and this is something that isn't often seen, do quite a few practice laps during the weekend, Plus, they have uh, they have properly accomplished drivers as well, so uh, you don't generally see see those mistakes. But Scott, coming back to the matter at hand, we talked about this pressure on Michael Mazzi during the, the four hour uh, attempt to run the race. Tamara Salter says the biggest takeaway for me today was the lack of clarity of the rules and the different interpretations that the teams had. Even Red Bull seems to know the rules better than Michael Mazzi. Can the rules be made clearer so there's no ambiguity? You mentioned the Perez situation. In fact, that was my reading of the rules at the time that Jonathan Wheatley. Uh, Red Bull was, was absolutely correct. But how much of the problem is, in fact, in the way the rules are presented and the gaps in the rules? Yeah, there, there are always things that pop up where you and I will say to one another, well, that's just badly written. That's a badly written regulation. So th- that does uh, inherently cause uh, cause some confusion. I do think the difficult nature of today and some of the stuff that was being dealt with meant there was a lot of a lot of trying to work out scenarios that get, I guess, happen so rarely that it, there isn't the same level of sort of intuition with, with dealing stuff. So I, I understand that. I can understand why that can be a little bit clumsy. But I do think there is an absence of uh, transparency and there needs to be a better way It's trying to project some of this information across to the to the viewer because 
the things that were, like we were saying that there you know why is there a discussion over whether the race has officially started why is there debate over has the the race the three hour race window actually opened um what impact does the fact that the safe the the formation that began under the safety car have uh how many laps have actually got to still be completed in the in, in the race how many laps have you taken off the total race duration like these are questions that it's completely right and fair to ask them in this situation because there are all sorts of regulations dictating this but they, the answers should be given and they should be given simply they should be given in ways that are easy to understand and quickly as well as soon as the, these regulations are there written in black and white so it's not like someone has to try and work out what it is what it is you just need to even know it or quickly find it and tell people what they need to know i understand that that's sometimes the job of the commentator that's the job that we have because we broadcast information to fans on social media so we were doing the best job we can but f1 and the fia know this stuff so it's it's their responsibility to be trying to get as much of it across as clearly as possible but i think the the think the real area in this where the rules aren't fit for purpose and that i think cause a lot of division and there is definitely ambiguity is on the whole half point situation because i a lot of people i could see we're asking, because you mentioned it earlier, how could we have satisfied the rule of completing more than two laps and therefore qualifying for half points being awarded when the race classification was based at the end of lap one? The race classification clearly shows that only one lap was completed in this, this Grand Prix. So how do you square the two? And this is because there are two different regulations governing two separate areas that say two, that, that command two different things. One being the article of the sporting regulation, which I believe is Article 6.5, which is the one that just simply specifies more than two laps need to be completed by the race leader for 50% uh, points to be awarded. Now, in the FIA's view, that happened. That unquestionably happened because Max Verstappen came into the pits at the end of his third lap. And because he crossed the control line, even though it was under a red flag and the race was being suspended, he crossed the control line. It ticked over to a third lap completed. That was it. Three laps completed, three is more than two, 50% points can be awarded. But because the race didn't resume and it finished under a red flag, under a suspension, there's a mechanism separate in the rules, I think it's like Article 51 or something like that, where it outlines how you calculate the final classification in that situation. And that is done, I'm not going to say in the really complicated way it's done, it's specified in the sporting records it's basically it goes back two laps so in this case the race had been completed over three laps but you go back to the end of lap one to determine the final classification in the FIA's view those two things are separate just because the final classification says only one lap was completed doesn't mean that actually only one lap was completed now there's clearly a contradiction there and you can interpret it different ways but the point is the FIA says that the number of laps that the final classification shows doesn't have to determine the number of laps that article 6.5 is governed by so that's how you end up in this situation where three laps were completed but the results only say one lap was completed I don't agree with the FIA's interpretation I think that is needlessly confusing I think that is a needless disconnect but I'm not the one in charge, which, while sometimes I feel like I might make better decisions, probably overall for F1, it's better that I'm not in charge. <laughs> it's easier to be the critic, isn't it? But no, you've got a very good point there. And I'd say, Mark, quite a few drivers suggested that maybe 
because points weren't really worthy of, of what happened, there should be some kind of rule that demands its X number of green flag laps or something like that. Would you be in favour of something on those lines? Maybe raise the number a bit and stipulate that at least there has to be some proper active racing of substance because can't do anything about the weather, but it would be a shame if we had another Grand Prix that was like, like this again, wouldn't it? Yeah, there has to be some actual racing for points to be given out. That's that's just ludicrous that you get points for circulating behind the safety car. I mean, that doesn't need to be spelled out. That's 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 just obvious. But um, that's not how it is. Uh, yeah. So I, I actually go back to what Scott said. You, you, I, I actually see where the the distinction between the number of laps completed and the number of laps that they uh, are, the, the results are determined by that disconnect i can see where that comes from that it it's a an unintended consequence of the 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 regulation that's there on count back so that when there's been carnage and the race has to be stopped and you 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 need to go back to when it was you know actually properly a race before everybody planned off and the results were just you know random you need you need to have a mechanism where you can do a count back and then it's it's typically stated as two laps. So, yeah, I can get that. And that's how this has um, been applied here. But it's unnecessary, as Scott said, it's unnecessarily complicated and it should really be simple. If you haven't actually had a race, there shouldn't be any points handed out. Well, one of the problems is, I guess, and I'm not going to defend them too much on this, but obviously those regulations weren't written with the idea that a free lap Grand Prix would ever take place, would it? So Exactly. So this combination of things, it is just rare, but it has happened. It shows it can happen. And as uh, McLaren boss, Zach Brown, said, he did a video on his personal Twitter addressing fans, says F1 has now had this situation and it's in it's f1's responsibility now to sit down review this and work out right we need we need to install a proper contingency plan because clearly what we have in place when this freak event does occur it's not good enough so let's make sure we've got something better because something's been exposed by this no he's absolutely right and obviously zap brown's a sharp commercial mind as well so he knows what it means for the perception of f1 and the value of f1 to have things like this happening so it's uh yeah it's it's an important one and, and it's very clear that there needs to be some changes made to the sporting regulations. But we should address the impact of what happened, Mark. The race has closed up the World Championship battle. Verstappen's now three points behind Hamilton and Red Bull seven behind Mercedes in the Constructors' Championships, but there are potentially wider implications. Yanis van der Waal asks, to what extent does this benefit Red Bull or Mercedes that this race isn't raced, though half points are awarded? In hindsight, a benefit for Verstappen is the mileage on the engine he has, with uh, with no new ones is limited and it's beneficial for everyone in terms of the cost cap. I think um, probably Red Bull would have signed up to this at the uh, start of the weekend, um, but it's yeah, um, we we will only know at the end of the season who it's really benefited when we. Yeah, that's that's very very true. It's uh, you can often only only do these in uh, in reverse, but yeah, obviously whoever won this race was always going to feel advantaged a little bit by it but ultimately Verstappen might well have been up there it was a little bit of a surprise because actually you'd say if it was going to be a wet conditions qualifying based race win you'd say Lewis Hamilton was well set for that because he's turned in so many stunning wet wet qualifying laps struggled a little bit uh, for grip although he was still over two seconds faster I think than Valtteri Bottas in Q3 so he was uh, he was not exactly hanging around but 
one thing we should talk about, because we talked about him tangentially, Scott, is Sergio Perez. His future was confirmed during the Spa weekend. He will be with Red Bull next year. No big surprise there. But do you think he could have marked the occasion in a much more disastrous manner? Um, uh, <laughs> try and struggling to think of one. Um, no, I sort of joked uh, when the Grand Prix. I think was probably still happening. Well, s- such that it, so such that it can be called a Grand Prix. Um, that it, Sergio Perez has done an excellent job in a race with no racing, with only three laps under the safety car to turn whatever it was seventh on the grid <laughs> into uh, finishing. Well, I guess it would have been what eighteenth or nineteenth at the uh, at the back. Um, that's a pretty impressive feat for a race with no racing um, and the order defined by the finishing order defined by where you should have started. Yeah, he was nineteenth in the end because Lance Stroll got a penalty for a change of, of rear wing assembly. But Mark, regardless of the uh, the unfortunate incident on the reconnaissance lap, when I imagine. Sergio must have had a very, very painful few seconds as he slid towards that barrier. Do you think it's the right move from Red Bull? Um, don't know. I'm, I'm waiting to to see how he gets on the rest of this season in in, in reducing that deficit to max. I'm not altogether confident he'll do that. But as with Daniel Ricciardo, they have the reset of the 2022 cars coming up, and. I suspect that that will help him and that uh, the car is developed in a direction, the Red Bull is developed in a, in a direction which, um, you know, he's, he's come in from the outside cold in, and it doesn't really, doesn't really suit. It, it, it's a very demanding drive. Um, and I, I, I think the, the format of the cars for 2022 uh, will, will, will not, um, those traits are, are, I don't think will be there. So I think in a more conventional car, let's say a, a car which drives more conventionally, I suspect he'll be able to reduce that. Um, it, it is quite a yawning chasm at the moment in terms of his qualifying pace. And um, by the time, typically, I mean, forget this weekend, but typically when he qualifies sixth or seventh behind a Charles Leclerc or a Lando Norris, you know, in, in guys in slower cars, yes, he will eventually get past them in the race. But by the time he's done that, Verstappen and Hamilton have checked out and are 20, 25 seconds up the road. So that's, you know, that's not really, from his point of view, that's that's very, very disappointing. In terms of Red Bull's perspective, they just want a solid number two who will bag the points. And who will be there uh, if uh, this some misfortune falls upon Max, which you know he showed in Baku that he's perfectly capable of doing that, and he's several times been in the in the window that's prevented Mercedes from doing a, a second stop and trying to attack Max that way. So that for for Red Bull, yes, he's he's sort of doing the job just about adequately, and given that the 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 difficulty they've had filling that role. Um, with Gasly and Albon, I think they prefer just to concentrate on Max and know that they've got a sort of reliable, semi-reliable number two there. But Max, I would, I'm sure, um, aspires to be a lot more than that. And at the moment, he's um, he's, he's barely fulfilling the Red Bull part, of the expectation, let alone his own higher uh, levels of expectation. Yeah, I don't think Red Bull really had any alternatives at this stage i did ask perez about the the hopes for next year and he said yeah the new car 
he's hopeful that being there from the the ground floor of the new project will help that a driver of his experience couldn't really do a great deal jumping into the last year of a kind of car development program but Perez knows it's been a it's been a very very chastening season for him hasn't he we know how good Perez can be but the trouble is you have the absolute great drivers and Verstappen is unquestionably one of them and then you have very 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 good drivers like Perez but sometimes they can kind of fall out of the window or be in difficult situations where it doesn't work so let's hope he gets back in the window because he is a really really fine performer when he when he can Scott Amazingly, you seem to have had some feedback from from the crowd that we asked for before we've even released this podcast. Yeah, there everyone's massively, uh, obviously on 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 the ball, um, so I, I can understand that. Yeah, I, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't out this person by by name because obviously I, I don't know if they they're comfortable with that. But I, I, I have had a few messages from 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 people, um, most in public, just sort of people who were attending, saying that you know they how how horrible this experience has been but one fan who's um was 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 at the track a message to say um they, they feel completely robbed after the whole experience and especially stefano domenicali's statement at re refunds has made them livid they say my partner my brother and i have paid a significant amount of money to attend this event and for the prospect of a refund to be dismissed on a whim like that is extremely maddening i'm sorry i'm just venting but i've waited over a year and a half for this event and i honestly I say this with total sincerity. My heart genuinely goes out to people like that because I know from not from an experience quite like this, but I know what it's like when you invest a lot of money in something that is meant to be meant to be special. It's meant to be something that you you enjoy, and when that gets taken away from you, and then when you also get treated like a, it feel you feel like you're treated like a commodity uh, afterwards, and uh, you, you don't get any kind of recompense for what you've lost that is it's cruel in 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 a way and it's it's horrible you know especially i'm sure there will be people who came here on a on a weekend ticket and they've had a whole event and stuff like this but there will also be people who came here one day and even the people who have come here for the for the event it's a huge undertaking to go to a grand prix and there are people that don't live shall we say within an hour's drive of spa that have come come to this race you've got brits coming over here people coming from all, all parts of europe massive financial undertaking and then to sit through this is insulting in its own way but then to hear afterwards effectively words that say well you know this is what you get sometimes so you know like it or lump it that that's it that is even more insulting so i i just i can't uh i can't express my sympathy with these people uh, in, in, in the right terms, really, to do justice to what, what, what they've had to sit through, because it is massively unfair. Yeah, they're completely right. And we've got to add the fact that people have not been able to go to things for a, for a long time. The past 18 months have been difficult for, for everyone. So these events will be kind of even more of a thing to look forward to and enjoy and to have it kind of taken away from you. I'd expect a bit better from F1, to be quite honest, just in terms of their tone and public messaging. They're talking about expanding the sport, bringing in new fans. Well, if you can't look after your existing fans... And that's not through any kind of serving the hardcore and not worrying about the rest of the world. That's just basic customer service and, and decency, really, isn't it? Just need to do a little bit better. It wasn't F1's fault the race couldn't happen, but they could have handled things a lot better. So, uh, yeah, thank you for that uh, for, the, for that feedback. It's uh, it's interesting to know uh, how people are feeling about it. And I'm just very sorry to hear that it's uh, it's been such a such a bad day for, for people. 
Well, Mark, there is a little bit more track action relevant to talk about. George Russell, we haven't talked about him. Second place in qualifying for Williams. That ensured there is a reason for this weekend to be remembered for for what happened on track. That, of course, became second thanks to the Notta race. But uh, how exactly did he do that in a Williams? Uh, It was an extraordinary performance. Um, It was helped a little bit by um, just circumstance, but uh, that car was... Well, I mean, it's. He was saying that his his strategist was saying that in the dry they worked out that that car was his seventeenth fastest on the grid. In the wet, it was probably a bit better than that. Um, they put a bit of downforce on it, and the the Alpines weren't working very well, and the Alphas weren't working. But it's probably only about the tenth or twelfth fastest car there, and he's put it second on the grid. And partly it was because he did such a great job on the preparation lap and he was able to do that um ironically because the 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 tire choice when they first went out in q3 when he'd chosen wets and it it became obvious that he should have chosen inters so he wasn't able to do what everybody else did which was a, a a push cool push lap and everybody else that did push cool push found that their tires weren't fully up to temperature um by the start of their second push lap and George, because he'd done two push laps, one a sort of compromised one in terms of energy deployment, but push in terms of the tires and the brakes, had his everything at the perfect temperature at the beginning of the lap. So he did, he was able to um, have a, a car that was working pretty well at the beginning of the lap compared to, say, Verstappen and um, Hamilton. But he did an extraordinary job with it. And if you watch his in-car, the, the job that he did um, through... A rouge and a, it's it's a very tricky uh, corner this year where the, the the bump there's a new bump where they've repaired the track from the mudslides, and in the, in the wet it's no longer flat. It's you, you get flat when you go in, but then it's a it's a down change and a lift for quite a quite a way up that hill. Um, but his um, his lift was <laughs> it was very small, uh, much smaller than Verstappen's, but but partly because he had confidence that because he was the, the, the tires were there but also just because it was very very ballsy and he, he he absolutely had to do that to get a good straight line run down Lacombe because he was carrying a bit of downforce not as much as the Red Bull but more than the, the Mercedes and that was a it was half a second faster than anyone in, in in sector one as a result of that and then it's um it was then really about not losing too much time mainly to the Red Bull through sector two. And he was just absolutely fantastic through there. And he was just dancing that through and um, in a, in a beautiful, elegant way that he, that he did it. And it was, it was, it was just, it was like poetry watching it. And um, yeah, that, that was, it. it was just a stunning lap uh, in a car that was working well and a team that had made all the, all the right calls. And uh, yeah, it was just uh, one of the all time great qualifying laps. Yeah, you have to put it down to that. And although, obviously, tremendously lucky to uh, to be able to get the second place, it comes from, same with Verstappen. He put it second, he got the second place, thanks to circumstances. So it, it reflects the qualifying performance, ultimately. But a great moment for Williams and just, just reveals the class of George Russell. We talked a lot about how, how good he, he, he is. We had a question, actually, from Gordon Ross, which is, how do you think George Russell's achievement this weekend compares to Damon Hill's unexpected heroics in Hungary? 97 that's quite a good question because that's one of my 
favorite favorite races and Hill's performance in the Arrows was astonishing, qualifying third and all but winning, but just losing it out to a, to a problem near, right near the end. In fact, you can listen all about that on, on our sister podcast, Bring Back V10s, Season 1, Episode 4, How Hill Nearly Won a Race for Arrows. So you can, you can listen about that. But there were circumstances behind that. We know how good Hill was. The Bridgestone tyres were working brilliantly there, and he, ma- he made the most of it. But I, I feel just for sort of one sheer impact, I, I'd say probably if we're comparing it, Russell's probably had something more to it simply because Russell is also a driver on the way up, isn't he, Scott? You know, he's he's not a world champion as Damon Hill was there. He's got everything still, well, something still to prove anyway, not everything. Yeah, I I sort of said it's, um, obviously he had the Secure Grand Prix where he stepped in at Mercedes and he almost beat Bottas to pole position, which was outrageous in its own right. Uh, and then, of course, he, he drove so amazingly in the race and he should have won, not once, but 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 twice. Um, and, and that was a huge statement. But I actually think this eclipses that as a massive, I, I refer to it as a look at me moment. Just we, we know George is, we, we know George is mega. We, we, we watch him pretty much weekend, week in, week out. We, we, we see stuff, but you only have to look at sort of how much criticism he gets for things that actually on surface level look worse than they are to know that people don't always sort of see that so obviously. So to have that, this kind of just massive in your face thing in a Williams is is just great currency for 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 George and I think it's I I honestly think it, it will go down as uh, depending on your, your your view some people will view this as one of the great F1 qualifying performances I certainly think it's it's one of if not the most impressive uh, underdog performances of of this generation I can't think of something that comes at you with such ferocity as this things like Nico Hulkenberg's pole for Williams obviously but that was a fundamentally more competitive car even if it was in mixed conditions and he did it he did a great job with that day Giancarlo Fisichella's pole here obviously as well stands out but I just think for for who George managed to overcome and how slow that that Williams can be yeah this is this is just like this is this is one for the ages basically as a performance and on a related topic, Scott, Mercedes still hasn't officially announced its driver plans. Toto Wolff says a decision has been made. In fact, he said yes when asked that question multiple times. Why are they being so coy about it? Uh, because they haven't found an alternative. Uh, well, because I guess they haven't tied up Valtteri Bottas's alternative. I was going to say they haven't found one for him. I think they have. Uh, I think it'll be Bottas to Alfa Romeo and it's all going to be announced at Monza because that makes sense. Ties in with Alfa's home race. I would be, I'd be really so stunned now if it, if it's Bottas for, for next year. I, I really like Valtteri. I think it is peak. He is a phenomenally fast driver, one of the fastest in F1s, in F1. Um, but I think his time has passed. I think his performances have gradually dipped as the season's gone on. Um, I think George is going from strength to strength. And I don't know. It's Maybe it's easy to say this. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. But I just think if you were going to say... If you were going to say that decision has been made and it has been made in George's favour, Valtteri is on his way out, then those two drivers performed in qualifying in difficult conditions exactly the way you would expect them to if that decision has indeed been made that way. You know, George absolutely riding a crest of a wave, confidence at an all-time high, just going from strength to strength, loving what he's doing, loving showing people what he's doing. And Valtteri just wind out of his sails a little bit. He's now sort of 
he's never going to phone it in, obviously, to the end of the season, but he knows that he's running out of time, basically, and he's, he's counting down the days to his exit. And it sort of just had a sort of deflated air to it. The one caveat to that is obviously that VB has never been sort of particularly stunning in <laughs> these conditions. He has struggled, in my recollection anyway, with, with Mercedes, always struggled to be quite so impressive. So may, maybe it's nothing to do with it, but that was just sort of my interpretation of what we saw. The bottom line is... Valtteri Bottas has had his shot in a, in a great car for many years. We've seen what he can do. He's won races, done a great job. I was a, a great proponent of Bottas on the way up. But every driver, that there's a point where they kind of reach their reach their peak and can't quite dig that little bit deeper and, and take the, the last step. And he's basically got to what you might call the second rung of a, of a pretty high ladder. So that, that's done impressive. And now it's, it's Russell's chance to or Russell's time, rather, I should say, to, to prove that he can cut it week in, week out at the front of an F1 field. We haven't seen if he can do that week in, week out. We've seen a couple of glimpses, but that's hopefully the question that he will have the chance to answer uh, with Mercedes. One quick question on another, almost the lost star, the forgotten star of the weekend, Mark, was Lando Norris. He reckoned he was a pole threat before he had that crash uh, in in Q3, very heavy accident battered him around a bit he had a an x-ray on his his elbow to make sure there was nothing uh nothing awry there but he was absolutely flying before that wasn't he and and if if he had got pole he'd have got a win yeah it's such a shame he he was absolutely flying he was in contention for pole without with a shadow of doubt i mean quickest in q1 quickest in q2 and he was just absolutely bursting to get at it and at the beginning of q3 you know even though the conditions were very tricky he was just absolutely you know on a wave, he was just pushing like crazy. Um, very, very confident, and then yeah, just uh, just bit him, just uh, just a little bit too hot into Arouge over that tricky, tricky little dip that I was talking about before, and uh, yeah, that was it. And uh, thankfully, he was uh, all he got was a sore elbow because it was a very, very nasty looking shunt. Yeah, it was uh, was not a not a pleasant one, but yeah, <laughs> one of those. Uh... Those weekends that just people who look at the results in the future won't realise quite how how close he came. We should add Daniel Ricciardo had his had his best McLaren result, didn't he? In in fourth place, having qualified fourth, obviously because it wasn't a race. So uh, good for him, but he, he never showed that uh, that Norris like pace. I like that you just said that as if it's a given that Ricciardo would have finished there. We've already been over this. Ed Perez has proven that even in the race with no racing and no overtaking, you can still throw away a decent position. Well, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's very sad for uh, Sergio Perez. We'll have to he'll have to be careful, or he'll end up inheriting Val. Valtteri Bottas sympathy corner next year, won't he? So uh, let's hope not. No, that's true. Actually, uh, the comment I just made just made me realise I wanted to give Nicholas Latifi a shout out for managing to turn whatever it was, 12th or 13th in qualifying, into a points finish in a race with no uh, no overtaking of three laps under the safety car thanks to a combination of grid penalties and Perez binning it so that's a that's an amazing conversion from that qualifying spot given what happened on Sunday yeah he, he jumped uh jumped Perez and, and the penalty pair Bottas and and Norris so that one was a uh <laughs> was a, a fine achievement but yeah he's, he's rumbling on nicely looks like he will definitely be at Williams next year so second consecutive points finish for Nicholas Latifi well thanks very much Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell we found plenty to talk about despite the fact that this wasn't really a race no matter what the history books say head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen there's still loads to read there there won't be Mark Hughes's race analysis but he shall be having a a, a good look at uh, some of the issues surrounding what went on with the race I'll still do my driver ratings that will be 99.9% based on qualifying I think you can probably guess which driver maybe damaged their rating a bit so 
uh, based on the race. And Scott Mitchell will be writing about why George Russell very much deserved that second place, despite the fact that obviously he didn't earn it in the race in any way. It's purely a, a qualifying achievement. So thanks very much for listening. We're now going to be turning our attention to Zandvoort and heading to the Netherlands, where we'll bring you everything you need to know about the Dutch Grand Prix. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.